Lord, we thank you so much for this day that we can be together and uh, in your presence with God's people. Thank you for just the wisdom in establishing this day, the Lord's day, that we can set aside all of our other concerns, rest from our secular labors, and um, receive from you and give. Use our gifts and your amongst your body. We pray for those that are teaching our children and and um, thank you that Pastor Milton's back with us and pray for him as he preaches today and also as he does a wedding later tonight. You give him strength and we just thank you for your great love for us in Jesus' name. Amen. This is about as loud as I can talk. Are you guys okay? Okay. Cool, cool. Well, we are going to... Um, be moving into the ministry of Elisha this morning. And uh, you guys read, uh, hopefully, Second Kings chapter 2 and Second Kings chapter 5. We're going to give the vast majority of our attention to chapter 2 uh, this morning, uh, which is really an amazing uh, section of Scripture. Uh, so let's do just a little bit of review. And uh, just to kind of remind you, remind you guys where we're at kind of in this class. Uh, so we are talking about Elisha. Next week, we'll actually go back to, chap to Lesson 10, and we're going to be doing Jonah. So we'll be studying uh, the book of Jonah next week. So we'll look forward to that. Um, what stands out to you about last week's lesson? Anything... Um, stand out about the lesson from last week. Everybody's like, man, what was that lesson last week? Remember we were talking about the Elijah, Mount Carmel, his battle with the prophets of Baal. And also Obadiah, who's working within the system. Um, let me just ask you kind of one leading question, then we'll probably move on. Is uh, Why would a, a Jew have been attracted or enamored by Baal worship? We touched on that last week. Yeah, it was cultural. It was, uh, this was something that the, uh, Jezebel and Ahab were promoting. Right, so there were certain financial and political rewards for being a Baal worshiper. What else? Yeah, it was a free sexual lifestyle. Things could be not going so well at home, really didn't matter in Baal worship. You could just go down and pick up a temple prostitute, and you're actually fulfilling your um, worship duties by committing immorality. And so you have kind of like a sexual freedom movement within Baal worship. What, anything else? It was also a, a traditional religion. It was an old-time religion. It's kind of like what we see today with the movement back to, um, you know, like if you talk to um, anybody from, like, say, Mexico, there's this movement in Mexico to go back to the worship of the Aztecs, get back to the good old pre-Spain gods, right? get back to our heritage, reject Roman Catholicism, Get back to the good heritage when we were, you know, tearing hearts out of people and offering it up to Quizzicotal or what have you. Um, so that kind of move, that kind of stuff you see all over the place. In the United States, with the way it's, you, you can see it is there's a lot of people that are going back to Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, believe it or not. And part of the reasons they say that is, is <clears throat> they feel like there's more tradition and history in those faiths. So this whole Baal worship thing, was it's not something unique uh, just to the time of Elijah. Uh, it's something that we deal with today. And so we see the Lord using Elijah in some pretty amazing ways as he does this face-off with the prophets of Baal. And Obadiah doing some amazing ministry behind the scenes, hiding prophets, kind of like people hiding Jews during World War II and so on. So, um, and it seems like just all over the Old Testament, we keep being reminded of both the grace of the Lord and the judgment of the Lord. It seems like that just keeps popping up over and over. That God is very willing to pour out his grace on those that will come and humble themselves 
At the same time, the severity of his wrath is displayed before us when people reject Yahweh and go after false gods and so on. So let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 2. And um, what we're going to see here, we could call this particular chapter, let me skip by our memory device. They should have got rid of that. So we're right here in the divided kingdom period, right? Um, all right, so we're going to be dealing with 2 Kings chapter 2. And you could kind of title this section. There's a lot of things that you could say. You could call this, if we were to make a movie about chapter 2, um, you might call it Taken. We've got Elijah taken up uh, into the, uh, the other world. Uh, you've also got kind of like this uh, Curseville versus Blessingsville or Graceburg. We're going to be looking at <clears throat> there's these curses that come upon Bethel. Uh, but there's these blessings, this reverse of the curse that we're going to see in Jericho. But we've got two main characters. There's other characters, but kind of two main characters that we track throughout this chapter. And the first main character is whom? Say it again. Elijah. And then we've got his protege, which is named Elisha. And so this is kind of like, you know, I mean, this is historical narrative. But if you're watching some of these good old kung fu movies, right? Or like Star Wars, you've always got like the Jedi. And then you've got their, what do they call their trainee again? Pad one learner, something like that. You've always got the Jedi. And you've got the pad one learner. <clears throat> this is something that goes way back, right? This kind of thing in narrative. Um, so if you watch a Kung Fu movie, you've got the master and then he's training his protege. And so that's what we see here. So let's, let's start in verse one. <clears throat> We're going to move through the, the chapter and make some running comments. And let's just be reminded that this is God's holy word. We're not just reading some math book or history book this is the bible this is from god almighty verse one and it came to pass when yahweh was about to take up elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that elijah went with elisha to gilgal then elijah said to elisha stay here please for yahweh has sent me on to bethel and so we get we get kind of like a uh, a foreshadowing. The author tells us right out the gate. Here's kind of what's going to happen. Elisha is going to be taken up into heaven, and um, and so we already know that it's all heading towards that uh, that high point, that climax. But Elisha said, "As Yahweh lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you." So they went down to Bethel. Anybody remember anything historical about Bethel? that we've talked about here in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, so Jeroboam set up one of his gods in Bethel to make sure that people didn't go down to Jerusalem. So this is a place of terrible apostate Baal worship. Um, verse three, now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that Yahweh will take away your master from over you today. <clears throat> so again, there's this mystical stuff. I like to hear uh, kind of like a Kung Fu flute going on in the background while these things are being said. Do you know that your master is about ready to be taken away from you? And his response is, yes, I know. Keep silent. <clears throat> so he's like, yeah, I know that. Keep silent. I think, I think the idea is like, shh, shh. You know, be quiet. There's, uh, there's, there's almost kind of like this. Um, people know that this is going to happen, but they're kind of there's this tension of silence about it. Nobody wants to really talk about it. It's like the elephant in the room. Elijah's going to be leaving us. <clears throat> now, why do you think people would be hush hush or even worried about the departure of Elijah at this point in Israel's history? Say it again. 
Yeah. This guy is, he is the all-star prophet. He is, uh, he's the one that's really stood up to Baal worship. He's, you know, the remnant <clears throat> looks at him as their hero, right? The other people look at him as an evil guy. But, you know, people are like, wow, we're going to lose our, our main guy here. It'd almost be like if all of a sudden we got this notice that, you know, Pastor Milton was going to have to move and he was going to be gone in six months. I don't know about you, but I'd just be like, oh, no. It'd just be a bummer, right? We're so blessed by his ministry and so excited, you know, just he's had such an impact here at this church. <clears throat> and so so here, Elijah, when you talk about losing somebody like Elijah, man, it's like uh, somebody like Martin Luther when he passed away or John Calvin. Um, I'm too young to remember when John F. Kennedy died. But just the, you know, the national mourning that went on when we lost our, our president. Um, so verse 4, then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord, or Yahweh, has sent me on to Jericho. And he said, as, the, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. <clears throat> so they came to Jericho. So you almost get the impression that this is kind of like, one of those Kung Fu tests, you know, it's just kind of like, let's see if Elisha's going to stick with me. Is he going to keep traveling with me? Is he really going to follow through in this final test of his training? And he's no, no, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to keep uh, following you. But he said, as, as Yahweh lives, and as you're so, okay, we said in verse five, now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho, um, came to Elisha and said, do you know that the, that Yahweh will take away your master from over you today? And he said, yes, I know. Please keep silent. So it's, it's weird. It's like the spirit of God keeps going ahead and informing all these other prophets, hey, Elijah's going away. And then they keep bugging Elisha about it. And he's like, stop bothering me. I know this is going to happen. Um, but it's, again, it's kind of like this tension of this elephant in the room. Uh, then he says, but, but he said, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. We're down almost to verse seven. So the two of them went on verse seven and 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now, Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up. What is a mantle again? Anybody remember? It's just kind of his outer garment, right? So it's like his, his outer garment. Um, rolled it up and struck the water and it was um, divided this way and that uh, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? Elisha says, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Now, the idea of double portion, um, you know, could mean that I want to have twice as much power as you. Probably the more likely case is, is he's asking for the rights of a firstborn. Um, you know, the firstborn child would get the double portion of the inheritance, uh, signifying that they are the, uh, <clears throat> the uh, progeny or the, you know, the person who's going to take on the authority afterwards but verse 10 so he said you have asked a hard thing nevertheless if you see me when i am taken from you it shall be so but if not it shall not be so then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire and you probably have appeared in italics if you have a your translation if it has appeared in italics that means that's not a verb in the original. The translators are trying to supply a verb to help us with the difficult Hebrew here. <clears throat> so the idea really is, is um, that suddenly a chariot of fire with horses of fire and separated the two of them and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. The Hebrew here, the words themselves are not difficult. The grammar is difficult because <clears throat> um, that, that verb appeared is is not there and so um so they're they're together 
And suddenly this thing that's described as chariots of fire and horsemen separates them. And then does the text say Elijah is taking up into heaven by a chariot? What actually takes him up into heaven? The whirlwind. Yeah, but most of your, probably your children's Bible books, they all show Elijah kind of up, going up into heaven, kind of riding a chariot with horses and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> and the Hebrew is, is generally difficult. Um, but the idea seems to appear that this fire, whatever this fire was, and a lot of times when we see fire in the Old Testament, like we have the cloud and the fire, or we have the Shekinah glory, it's actually <clears throat> the presence of, all, of God himself. And so what could be going on here is, is God himself, his own holy presence, separates the two of them. And then Elijah is taken up kind of by a whirlwind. <clears throat> he ascends just like Christ ascends uh, in the New Testament. So pick it up at verse 12. And Elisha saw it and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. Okay, so notice the grammar here. Here the grammar is a little more easier to construct. My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. If you just follow the, the grammar here in your English translation, who is being called the chariot of Israel with its horsemen? Say it again. Elijah. <clears throat> so he's calling Elijah my father, my father, but then he gives him another title, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So this is what actually makes some commentators think that, um, you know, that the chariot and the horsemen is actually a metaphor for Elijah himself. Um, <clears throat> that that he is Elijah is thought of. Uh, by the people of Israel and by Elisha as such a powerful prophet. It's like he is the defender of Israel. He is the army of Israel. And to lose Elijah is like losing, you know, your troops, so to speak. Um, again, you can look at your different Bible notes and stuff like that. There are some lots of different viewpoints in this because some of the Hebrew is a little bit challenging. Um, but it seems like verse 12, he seems to be calling Elijah, Elijah, the actual chariot of Israel, which we would call that in English. I used to be an English teacher. We call that a metaphor, right? When you say something is something like when Jesus says, I am the door, we know he's not literally a door, but he's using a metaphor to say, I am a door. If Jesus says, I am like a good shepherd. Now that's a simile. So in this case, this would be a metaphor that Elijah is being, he's, He's being referred to as the chariot of Israel. Verse 13, I'm sorry, uh, actually middle of verse 12. So he saw him no more and he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into pieces. So now we have kind of like this old Jewish tradition. You have Elisha basically just tearing his clothes. He's just mourning uh, the loss of Elijah and he also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by um, the bank of the Jordan. So he picks that mantle up. Then he took the mantle of Elijah and um, that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, where is Yahweh? Uh, and said, where is Yahweh God of Elijah? And when he had also struck the water, it was divided and this way and that and Elisha crossed over. So we get this phrase in, in English, like the passing of the mantle, right? You, get, you have one NFL football coach and somebody else takes over and they kind of pass the mantle. That all comes from this chapter. And so now Elisha is, is retracing the tracks. He's, they've, they've kind of gone on this little trip and now they're, he's cycling back. And the, the same Jordan that was opened by Elijah is now being opened by Elisha. And so there's this transfer of of authority, right? And uh, uh, to Elisha and, and the, and the prophets, they see, <coughs> they see this in verse 15. Now, when the sons of the prophets uh, who were from Jericho saw him, 
they said the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. So they're acknowledging it. Obviously, if you see, you know, if you go down to uh, the Kern River, which is very small compared to the Jordan, and all of a sudden the Kern River just opens up and somebody walks across, you'd be like, something's going on here, right? And so Elisha, something's going on for him to have that kind of power. And they came to him and bowed to the ground before him. And uh, they said to him, look now, there are 50 strong men with your servants. Please let them go and search for your master, lest perhaps the spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon a mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send anyone. Because Elisha, so we get from here that Elisha was no doubt the only guy that really saw Elijah go up. He knows that they're not going to find anybody. And so he says, no, don't even bother going on this posse, you know, um, search trip. But verse 17, but when they urged him um, till he was ashamed, he said, go ahead and send them. Therefore, they sent 50 men and they searched for three days, but did not find him. And when they came back uh, to him, uh, he had stayed in Jericho. Um, he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? So he's like, I told you so. And so I saw Elijah go up. The spirit of the Lord has not moved Elijah here or there. There's no body remaining. But he goes ahead and he appeases their desire. And they, so they go and they look for him. And then <clears throat> what we have beyond just the opening of the Jordan, we now have two incidences that come hard upon this transfer of authority to Elisha. One of the incidences demonstrates God's grace, as we're, we're going to talk about. The other incidents, a lot of Christ, our commentators are embarrassed by, and it demonstrates God's judgment. And so let's talk about those. Then we're going to go back and kind of do a, a theological applicational sweep through back through the chapter. So verse 19, Then the men of the city said to Elisha, Please notice the situation of the city is pleasant. Um, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground is barren. Translations vary on this, but um, one of the translations in the New uh, Jerusalem Bible, which probably gives the better idea, is is the water is foul and um, and our and, and it's resulting in miscarriages is the idea not just that the ground is barren but that we as a people who live in this land are barren we're we're suffering miscarriages in fact that hebrew word is frequently used for miscarriage so it seems like what's going on here is is they've got just bad water um in jericho and it's resulting in death particularly as exemplified in the death of of babies being born premature to where they cannot survive and so what does elisha do well he does something that we would not expect it said bring to me a new bowl and put salt in it so they brought it to him and he went out to the source and said thus says the lord i have healed this water from it there shall be no more death or barrenness so there the word barrenness picks up that same idea that was actually back up in the previous verse uh, so the water remained, remains healed to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. And so <clears throat> he does something that's miraculous. This isn't some kind of uh, ancient water treatment. Um, don't get, don't choke on the salt here. Prophets just frequently did little visual things when they did something from the Lord. He prophesies from the Lord and he puts salt. <clears throat> We're going to come back in a moment and talk about the connection to the curse, the Old Testament curse on Jericho and why they were suffering such. But let's move on first to verse 23. Now we get to this scene of judgment that just seems so odd to us in our Western ears. Then he went up from there to Bethel. Remember what's Bethel? Is this like a really cool, you know, very sanctified city? No, this is a corrupt apostate worshipers, you know, Baal worshipers where they had the golden calf set up by Jeroboam. Uh, so they, he went up 
from there to Bethel. And as uh, he was going up the road, some youth came from the city and mocked him and said, go up, you old baldy, go up, you bald head. So let's first talk about that part. So Elijah's going along his mining in his own business. It's not like he just happens upon these young people. These young people come out from the city to pursue him and mock him. And when they say, go up, you old baldy, it could mean a couple of things. It could be they had heard already of Elijah going up and they're like mocking him saying, why don't you go up into heaven like Elijah? The more likelihood, though, is that they're basically saying, you know, he had been he was on a road and the idea of going up. The idea was probably like, uh, don't let the door hit you on the way out. It's like, hey, fatso, get out of our town. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. It's probably the the spirit of this phrase, go up, old baldy. And so these guys are going up. We're talking about now the number one dude on the planet that represents Yahweh. These are young people and uh, who are coming out from the city of Bethel. Let me guarantee you that these young people weren't coming out because of righteous intention. Just imagine the Lord of the flies coming out. This is a, and furthermore, we're going to see this is a mob. This isn't just a few young people. This is a mob of people that go out to mock the number one dude on the planet now who is representing Yahweh. And a lot of people say, well, Elisha, you know, he just didn't have his coffee that morning. So he got irritated and called a curse upon them. But look what his actual words are in verse 24. So he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of whom? Yahweh. So he calls a curse down upon them in the name of Yahweh. If Yahweh didn't approve of a prophet's curse, would Yahweh fulfill the curse? No. But what happens? And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. If the bears mauled 42 of the youths, how many youths do you think there were? I don't know, a couple hundred, a couple 300 young people running up to Elijah saying, hey, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Fatso, get out of here. Get out of our city. We're Baal worshipers. Um, so then he went from there to Mount Carmel And from there, he turned to Samaria. So this whole chapter in a nutshell, it seems like it really hangs together, is you have basically you have this transfer of power. Elijah, Elisha follows Elijah. You know, they go on this little geographic journey together. Elisha's taken up and the mantle falls to Elisha. He starts to come back. And then we discover, is this, is he really the next guy in line? or not he opens up the jordan we see this miracle god brings grace upon jericho where there had previously been a curse we'll talk about that curse here in a second and then the prophets you know um, elijah had done battle with the prophets of mount carmel elisha comes out and he's being accosted by youth from bethel calls a curse down upon them we're going to look here in a second according to leviticus 26 These are not just any bears. These are covenant keeping bears. We'll prove that here in a second. And um, and uh, and so we see God's grace and severity right in the same chapter being poured out through Elisha. All right. So let's go back now and um, and let's talk about some things from a theological apologetic viewpoint in this chapter. Um. The first thing that we want to point out, um, well, to, you know, to have a guy like Elijah is like having an army all into yourself, right? <clears throat> this guy was, he was powerful. And, um, and so the remnant looked to Elijah and the idea of him being taken away was something that um, people were worried about. <clears throat> and so the Lord answers those worries by, by leaving Elisha. But the real problem that people have with this chapter um, is their allergy to miracles. That's the big problem. When people read this chapter, they're like, yeah, right. The Jordan opening up for a prophet. Kids being mauled by bears. Water being healed by salt. Are you serious? 
And so what pe- people do one of two things. In fact, let me read you a quote from a commentator who's just, you know, very candid in his rejection of this, of a lot of the content of this chapter. He says, the world of these narratives is certainly not the world of the modern reader. Water parts miraculously. Bears come out of the woods at the prophet's command. Magic ritual purifies a polluted spring. Chariots and horses of fire appear and a whirlwind takes Elijah up to God. And you could add, are you serious? Um, And uh, our first response to this would really be welcome to the world of the Bible. Um, if you have problems with these miracles, what are you going to do with God who speaks the, the universe into existence by just a thought? What are you going to do with God who floods the whole world for 40 days just by his own word? What are you going to do with Jesus Christ who is raised from the dead? I mean, these defy <clears throat> physical laws, right? And um, But we, too often, we've been duped into kind of this 19th century um, closed system that there's nothing beyond a closed system. It's, it's only what we can observe. It's only what we can taste, touch, measure, repeat, the scientific method. While there's lots of benefits to the scientific method, <coughs> you can't prove a closed system scientifically. It's a philosophical assumption. And so what's, what people often do with chapters like this is they just call it a tale. Um, or they'll say, this is, uh, this is the, the genre of legend. This is narrative legend. This was never meant to be taken as historical fact. These are just legends. Uh, prophetic legends, they would say, are <clears throat> kind of just one of the genres in Scripture. And so we shouldn't look to Second Kings chapter 2 and look for historical data. We should just see that this is a tale and a legend that we can learn things by. Um, and so it's almost like that. It's a very same idea that we've used that term in the past. Geshikta. If you guys have been with us for a while. Geshikta. It's story, not history. Um, and whenever there's miracles, really anywhere in the Bible, people want to automatically assume that this is legend. This is not history. But there's a couple of problems with that idea that this is just legend. First of all, there are no examples in ancient Near Eastern literature of led prophetic legends. In other words, if you, if you look outside of the Bible, if this was a, a genuine genre of the ancient Near East, wouldn't you see other prophetic legends in other religious writings? You just don't find them anywhere. You don't see any prophets of Baal or prophets of Molech and, and, and kind of this build up the, of these legends that go along with those prophets. So it's just made up. It's just pure. They're just making this out of whole cloth because they don't like the idea of miracles. But really, <clears throat> this is just a presuppositional problem where people have just decided that miracles can't happen. <clears throat> Therefore, we must call this material legend. Uh, I would suggest to you that the writers of Scripture knew what they were writing about. These were very intelligent people. And, and they're just passing on information to us that we see throughout Scripture. And just because um, we don't believe, you know, that <clears throat> there's particular miracles, we haven't seen a particular miracle during our lifetime, we're living in an epoch um, where there's, you know, we're not in a time period like Moses or Elijah or during the time of Christ. At the same time, there's all kinds of crazy things that the Lord is doing. The historical God is also the contemporary God. Um, so anyway, so the other thing I'd like to point out is just, uh, we, we kind of mentioned this before is if you, you've got this, uh, <clears throat> kind of geographical thing is they start off in Bethel, they go to Jericho, go to Jordan. Then Elijah comes from Jordan to Jericho to Bethel. Um, and so you've got this, uh, um, that's kind of that kind of creates the whole outline for the chapter. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about kind of like the spirit of Elijah coming to rest upon Elisha. Um, over in verse fourteen, we see the implication that God's power is not tied to a particular era. God's power is not tied to a particular era. He was 
using Elijah and pouring out his power. But then the time of Elisha comes and he's still pouring out his power. So we see the historical God is also the contemporary God. But we also see that God's power is not limited to one particular instrument. So what part of what we should learn from this passage is, yes, did the people of Israel, did the remnant lose Elijah, a tremendous leader? Yes, they did. But God's power still moves. You still have Yahweh, even though you've lost <coughs> Elijah. And, and that's, that's been the truth throughout uh, the history of God's people. When John Calvin died, you know, people were really upset to lose such a, a, such a champion of the Reformation. But his instructions were that he would just be put into a pine box. And he didn't even want his, the place in the ground marked lest people come and try to venerate his grave. And within just a few months, people knew the basic area where he was buried, but they really didn't know which hill it was. And part of the whole idea of that is Calvin, he really believed that when he died, the Lord was still marching on and the Lord just going to use other people. None of us in this room are indispensable. You know, if I fall down and have a heart attack tomorrow, guess what? There's still going to be Sunday school next week, you know, the week after that. Somebody else is going to teach it. Somebody else will get up and lead worship. Somebody else will be, you know, an assistant pastor at Cornerstone. You know, 30 years from now, this church is, Lord willing, going to be filled with all kinds of other people. <clears throat> Milton and Carlos and uh, I, sometimes we joke around about us, all the problems we're going to cause in our old age <clears throat> as we kind of are sitting at business meetings and stuff. And I'm going to be there with my cane and like, that's not what our constitution says. We need to do it this way. And and we we're just we're just determined to cause all kinds of problems when we turn around like 80 90 years old both for my children and for cornerstone uh we yeah it's tongue in cheek but uh, but the lord's you know <clears throat> the lord will continue to move on and even if cornerstone were to go out out of existence guess what doesn't do anything to kingdom of god his kingdom is still going to be marching on <clears throat> and so we're not dependent upon one particular instrument um we also see uh, just that God's grace in this passage. If you think back to verse 19 and 22, where you've got this, uh, again, the foul water um, causing miscarriages. Um, you know, the prophet Elisha gives this visible symbol and the water is healed. Um, this is a, a really significant item that if we understand our our old testament old testament history it's a pretty amazing movement of god's grace turn to joshua six twenty six, because i want i want you to see a couple things here so you guys remember <clears throat> joshua brings the armies into jericho and they march around jericho seven times right and the walls come tumbling down right but what we sometimes forget is the curse that was placed upon jericho after their defeat Look at verse 26. Then Joshua charged them <clears throat> at that time saying, Cursed be the man before Yahweh who rises up and builds the city of Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn and with his youngest, he shall set up its gates. And so there's this curse that has come upon the city that it was not to be built up. And yet, in 1 Kings, we see that indeed uh, it was built up. Look at 1 Kings 16, 1 Kings 16, 34. In the days of Hiel of Bethel built Jerusalem, he laid its, or, I'm sorry, Jericho. <coughs> he laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, uh, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, son of Nun. So in other words, Hillel decides, I'm going to rebuild, rebuild Jericho. And he's got two, two graves to prove it, is the curse came upon him after he rebuilt it. And yet, nevertheless, in spite of this curse, Elisha comes in, the people are like, hey, can you help us? Our water is bitter, our people are dying. And he calls upon the Lord and the Lord reverses the curse and brings blessing upon Jericho. 
um, <clears throat> bring and heals their waters. And according to the writer of Second Kings, to this day, their waters are um, still healthy to drink. So they've gone from Curseville to Graceburg, all as a part of the of the grace of the Lord. And that's something that's, I think, good for us to be reminded of. I mean, just think of people, I mean, you yourselves or people that you just know in your life. How many people have experienced the consequences of their sin in the past, whether it's bad decisions when they're in their teen years or maybe their adult years and, and they and they're saddled under the weight of that. And the Lord comes along in his grace and he he says, just humble yourself. Uh, I'll give grace to the humble. You know, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so this is a chapter that actually we can just bring people back to you and say, look here how we see the curse upon Jericho. And yet God brought his grace back to that city and healed their waters and prospered them as a land. And uh, and so we see the grace of the Lord. But but lastly, we see God's frightening judgment in this final scene. And I think we need to keep this scene. Some people want to get rid of it. <clears throat> if, if some people are making a movie about kind of like the transfer of power from Elijah to Elisha, if we were going to do a little chapter called Taken, we would kind of do the Elijah-Elisha thing, show him Elisha opening up the Jordan, healing the waters, and then we would end the story right there. <clears throat> but the story doesn't end. The story moves forward with these covenant bears that maul 42 young people. And so we got to ask, why is, why is this story, this really good story ending with this really severe type of scene? And um, so let's, let's make, let's kind of reiterate a couple comments about this section that we see in verses 23 to 25. We've already said that this, this is a group, right? Is this just a few people, a few kids that were out playing with their toys and they happen to see Elisha come back and they're like, ring around the rosies, pocket full of posies. Is that what they're doing? No, this is a group of people. We don't know exactly how many. We know there were 42 of them mauled. And so I'm guessing a couple 300 young people. <clears throat> and so... Uh, and notice that they're young lads. Some of the translations say like, uh, forget how they'll say it. Like there's the, some of the English translations will go all over them, all over the map. But the idea here is these are not like four or five year olds that just got out of kindergarten. <clears throat> these are kids that are old enough to know better. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if you, I used to be a junior high teacher. And, you know, one of the things about teaching junior high is they're young enough to where you can still play some games with them but they're old enough to where they're, they can accept adult-like responsibilities and instruction. And junior hires can be just wicked. Uh, they can be wicked to each other. <clears throat> um, the type, you know, the bullying and, and some of the things that we saw junior hires do to each other when I was a junior high teacher uh, were pretty, pretty crazy. Um, <clears throat> we've, a lot of times, in Western culture, we have this view of children that children are all just very innocent and it's just the society that corrupts them. Um, if you go back to old Puritanism and kind of the older Christian theology, that was not the view of children. The view of children is your child has every, <coughs> every possible sin, <coughs> every possible corruption bound up in their own heart. And they don't need to come around bad company necessarily to corrupt them. They're corrupt in and of themselves. And so just imagine like two, three hundred young people, say around 12 years old, who have been hanging around Baal worship in Bethel and temple prostitution. Some of them at that age, being 12 years old, may have been uh, male, uh, male prostitutes themselves and worship to Baal. That would not have been too young for them to be male prostitutes as pedantry or pedestry was very... Uh, acceptable at this time period. <clears throat> and so these guys uh, come out and, um, and uh, it had been uh, 
approximately 80 years since Jeroboam set up the, the calves for Baal worship. And, um, and then, so then they come out and they start mocking Elisha, perhaps expressing their parents' own hostility. Um, and again, remember, these guys, they came out from the city to find Elisha. So somebody, somehow they heard that he was coming through town. It wasn't like he just happened to come upon them. They went out to find him, to mock him, <clears throat> and, and so on. Kind of reminds me of a couple things. Um, you know, in the Vietnam War, when, um, when the U.S. finally pulled out and um, the North took over um, uh, South Vietnam, um, they, would, they paraded a lot of the, the conservatives, those had, who had fought on the side of the United States or those that were fighting the Viet Cong in the North, they paraded these people through the streets and pe- as people spit upon them and children with their rocks at them and and call them insults, you know, call them capitalists and and uh, and really berate them because of the philosophy that the rich had raped the country. And I don't know if you've seen any of those videos of the people being paraded through um, southern Vietnam after the takeover, but it's just it's just heartbreaking uh, you also see a similar type of thing with uh, POWs that were brought back to Japan, like the Doolittle Raiders. Are you familiar with the Doolittle Raiders? Um, these POWs would be paraded through the Japanese streets, and children would throw things at them and, and hurl insults upon them <clears throat> because they were considered cowards. <clears throat> You've been captured, or you... <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> you... Uh, especially those that surrendered. <clears throat> it was assumed in Japan, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> that if you didn't die, you surrendered. And so any soldier that was brought to Japan as a POW was automatically despised. <clears throat> All that to say that <clears throat> the idea of children going out and mocking <clears throat> um, opponents is not unique to the pages of Scripture. But what we, And so what we have here also is, is deliberate intent, they went out from the city. They mocked him, said, go up, old Baldy, probably equivalent to <clears throat> don't let the door hit you on the way out. Fatso, something like that. Um, but I want you guys to turn with me um, to Leviticus twenty six twenty two. <clears throat> turn to Leviticus twenty six twenty two, because what <clears throat> what you see in this passage that is legitimately disturbing um, these folks are mocking Elisha and then Elisha calls upon Yahweh to curse them. And then these bears come out and maul 42 of these young people. <clears throat> and, um, but look at, uh, in Leviticus 26, this is the first giving of the blessings and the cursings. This is parallel to Deuteronomy 28, but tw- Deuteronomy 28 was given to the second generation of Israel. But the first generation of Israel, there's all these things. If you follow Yahweh, your God, and you don't worship other gods, here's all the blessings you'll you'll experience. If you reject God and you go back to false gods and idols, here are some of the cursings you'll experience. So in verse 22, the Lord says, I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock and make you few in number. And your highway shall be desolate. <clears throat> so right in the, the cursing section of Leviticus 26, we have God pronouncing <clears throat> that if you follow other gods and you reject Yahweh, your God, and you move into apostasy, I will rob you of your children with wild beasts. So if we want to get mad at Elisha, <clears throat> we better get mad at Yahweh. Because all Elisha is doing is calling upon Yahweh to bring the curse of Leviticus 26 down upon these young children. Again, Bethel, this is not a great town. This is Las Vegas times 100. This is Baal worship. This is temple prostitution. These are those that had tried to lure um, God's people away from worship. Listen to Matthew Henry what he has to say about this section, he says, uh, 
let the hideous shrieks and groans of this wicked, wretched brood make our flesh tremble for fear of God. That's just something that we don't think a whole lot about, that God, when he says that there are cursings coming upon people for their sins, that he really does judge. Look at what God did in the flood. Look at what God did at the Tower of Babel. Um, We see example after example of God's judgment. And what do we see in 2 Thessalonians is when people refuse to acknowledge the Lord and they actually begin to persecute God's kids, as it says in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says that Christ will come back. It's a just thing. Jesus Christ will come and with flaming fire and vengeance will pour his vengeance upon those who do not obey the gospel and do not love the appearing of his coming. The idea in in the first part of 2 Thessalonians is one of the reasons that God punishes people is because they harm his kids. They mess with his children. He will bring judgment upon their heads. You've got these young people going out and mocking Elisha and um, the one representative of Yahweh on the, the the biggest representative of Yahweh on the earth. Uh, Elisha knew what Leviticus 26 said and just was calling upon Leviticus 26. Yahweh bring this curse upon them Two bears come out of the forest and maul these young people. Um, And what should be the lesson that Bethel would learn from that? What should be the lesson is like, wow, God's word that was pronounced in Leviticus 26. We're seeing it fulfilled literally in our midst. Let's repent. Let's more beasts come upon us and. And, and, and tear our children to shreds. <clears throat> what are we seeing today? You know, in Romans chapter 1, it says, it talks about how that, that, you know, people suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and so God turns them over to a depraved mind, <clears throat> and that people are lusting in their bodies for uh, the flesh, uh, men with men and women with women, and then it says, so that they would receive the penalty in their bodies. There's there's cursing that's pronounced right there in Romans chapter one uh, for the rejection of God, the suppression of truth and unrighteousness that results in a culture that's given over to aberrant sexuality, which results in a penalty that reflects itself in the flesh. You know, the average homosexual male does not live past 47 years old. If there was any other practice like you know, where somebody was pretty much guaranteed to not live past 47, people would be proclaiming that all over the place. We need to stop this practice because uh, it's reducing, it's causing people to die younger. And so we need to do everything we can to stop this practice. Our culture won't do that. And so we'll, we'll continue to allow people to die at young ages as they deal with all kinds of, I don't even want to get into the, it's it, it's it's actually in one sense it's unfortunate we should get into the gory details so people know all of the health problems that are involved in homosexuality but if 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 you do some reading there's literature out there where you can read the documentation on the health problems that occur because of that type of sexual activity <clears throat> and um and just you know what it does to a person and we have right on the pages of scripture <clears throat> And yet there are people I've, I have friends with lots of people on Facebook and you'll see their testimonies all over YouTube. People have been able to repent and see God's grace in their lives and, and turn from those types of lifestyles to following the Lord. Um, let's end with this, that, um, you know, a lot of times we don't, we don't like to think of, this aspect of God that we see on the pages of scripture. Uh, We kind of have, we like the vision of God where he's just this grandfatherly old man likes to put children on his lap and pat them on the head, give them presents. But the idea of a God that actually controls all things and is bringing all people before his throne of judgment. And that those that are outside of Christ, who not not bow the knee, that they will stand before the awesome. It is called the awesome and terrible day of the Lord for a reason. You know, it's not like the happy Disney day of the Lord. 
It's the awesome and terrible day of the Lord that is coming, <clears throat> this time of wrath and judgment. And, and as Christians, it, there's every right for us to, to have a sense of holy fear. And if there was more holy fear, <clears throat> it would drive us to the cross and probably protect us from a lot of sins that we would otherwise uh, not give ourselves into. So there is a holy fright the church needs to recover. Um, Elijah has been taken, um, but everything is left behind. His power, the wisdom, the grace, the judgment. Elisha um, asked the right questions. Where is the God of Elisha? Answer, he's right here <clears throat> with his uh, struggling, suffering servants. Elijah is gone, but Yahweh <clears throat> remains. Let me just end on... Um, Gosh, I don't know if I should end on this note. It'd be kind of negative. Well, you guys know, uh, you guys have been watching the news that uh, <clears throat> this guy named Hugh Hefner passed away this week, 91 years old. <clears throat> what you may not know is that he was a virgin in college uh, because Hugh Hefner just basically lived like most other males in the 50s, just assuming that a person should be uh, sexually, just not have sex until they get married. That's just what the culture, everybody drank that same idea. <clears throat> and so he was a virgin in college, <clears throat> but then he came across the works of Alfred Kinsey. And I remember studying some of Alfred Kinsey's material when I was out over at Cal State San Bernardino. Kinsey is the, uh, <clears throat> the father of the sexual revolution who uh, did scientific research, allegedly, to try to determine what we as human animals, what what is actually going on in our sexuality. And what he did is he projected his own depravity upon his research. And, um, and, and, and Hugh Hefner said this, I'm going to be Kinsey's pamphleteer. I will be Kinsley's pamphleteer. And so he made it his mission to go out and to promote sexual freedom like we see in Baal worship. And we don't even remember today that pornography used to be illegal in the United States. It was illegal. But during Hugh Hefner's lifetime, <clears throat> he legalized it. And we're now at this place today where Kinseyan sexual ethics are practiced throughout our culture. You know, Alfred Kinsey died <clears throat> of a testicular disease that was a result of all of his just gross uh, engagements throughout his lifetime. The type of research he did, he did on children. He's recording. You can go to the library, pick up his books, talking about the sexual nature of two-month-old babies, 10-year-old kids. And people were asking, what, how, how do you come up with this research? <clears throat> it's just we've, we've built all of this idea upon the lie <clears throat> of a guy who projected his own sexuality, just like we had with Jeroboam and Baal worship projecting that up upon the people of God that just took Israel into a period of darkness, brought God's cursings down upon the country. But then we see Elisha pronouncing God's blessing of people repent. <clears throat> we see the same opportunities in our culture today <clears throat> is that God's cursings are, it's the same program. If people are going to stiff arm God and say, we, we we're going to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, then we will invite the penalty upon ourselves and he will turn us over to our own ways but if we will humble ourselves as a people, God will open up our eyes and he's ever ready to heal and pour grace out upon us <clears throat> if we're ready. I'll try to send you a link. I, there's a link that I, uh, a 10 minute movie I showed my kids this week because I wanted them to know the history of Alf, Alfred Kenzie and Hugh Hefner and the connection between the two. And uh, maybe I'll see if I can send that out to you guys this week just to, because there's, our culture does nothing but suppress the truth and the righteousness. Right. Nobody, nobody else is talking about this. In fact, it wasn't too long ago that they made a movie with Liam Neeson celebrating Kinsey as a person. You know, this guy was a child molester. And Hollywood is celebrating him as some guy that's, you know, <clears throat> promoting sexual freedom. Um, and so here we are in the church having people just being totally accosted by pornography, people struggling with pornography and things like that. And a lot of times what we don't realize is that we've been duped by a guy who was filled with the devil to try to, to, to totally warp our culture over about a 50, 60 year period. That's the legacy of Hugh Hefner. 
Um, and sad to say, well, actually, God will always get his judgment. He, he wins. He always wins in the end. He's not threatened by Hugh Hefner or anybody else. <clears throat> you can't escape death. With that positive note, let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word, that your word is so powerful. <clears throat> and um, we look at passages of scripture that um, like this chapter that we've seen today. And we just thank you, Lord, that your truth is always marching on. It doesn't depend on one person. It didn't depend on Elijah. It doesn't depend on Elisha. It doesn't depend just on Pastor Milton or any particular individual here. But we get to participate in your kingdom. We pray that we just continue to pass on the keys, as it were. But we thank you that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. Though we will be assaulted by the devil and the world and the flesh. Um, We should not fear that the Jeroboams of this world the Hugh Hefners of this world, the Alfred Kinseys of this world will win <clears throat> because there is this judgment that first of all is called death that no one can escape. And then there's the final great white throne judgment that every man and woman will have to face before you. But we thank you that Jesus Christ uh, propitiated your wrath <clears throat> and that if we come just by faith underneath the shed blood of Christ, we will be rescued from the wrath to come. And so we pray, Father, that our church, our children here, Lord, as they continue to contact the gospel, Lord, that they would be saved from the wrath to come. And Lord, that they'd be able to enjoy their life in this world, those suffering, that they would glorify you in Christ's name we pray. Amen.